The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. And uh, I told him my name, and I told him my name, and he said he was called Cole. There's not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. You're listening to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Foran, and this is your place to explore the weird, strange, and unexplained. From cryptids and creatures, the paranormal, aliens and UFOs, forbidden knowledge, ancient mysteries, conspiracies, and more. Hey all, and welcome back to the Strangeology Podcast. It's good to be back. Thanks for hanging out with me today. This is episode one of the fourth season of the show. It's kind of wild to me that Strangeology itself is going to be celebrating its fourth birthday this April. It's been a wild ride so far, and thank you all so much for joining me for this weird journey. But anyway, it seems like even though Punxsutawney Phil predicted an early spring, for this year, back on Groundhog's Day, we're still in it for the duration, at least for a few to several more weeks in New England, at least. But that's par for the course for this part of the world. Normally, this time of year, we get a big snowstorm around Valentine's Day, which we did get a storm, although it wasn't much of anything of note. And then historically, at least in my experience, mid-March around St. Patty's Day, we usually get a big dump as well. Uh, so we'll see. I'm definitely looking forward to spring. Definitely feeling that cabin fever starting to set in. But I hope that wherever you are, wherever you're listening to the show from, that you're all warm and doing well. But enough of the weather. This year is shaping up for me to be vending at a number of different events. So definitely mark these on your calendars. And I've got a few more beyond these ones that I'm going to mention that are in the works. I just uh, don't want to quite announce anything yet. But here's what I've got confirmed for now. I'll be at the Withville UFO Fest, and that's going to be in Withville, Virginia, on Saturday, June 8th. Later that month, on Saturday, June 29th, I'm going to be vending at Monster Fest 2 in Canton, Ohio, which I'm super stoked for. Last year was an awesome time. And in August, on Saturday the 10th, I will be at Squonkapalooza in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is hosted by Cryptid Comforts. And I'll be slinging my merch and hanging out at all these events. So definitely stop by my table if you're planning on attending any of them and say hi. We'll chat for a little bit and I'll make sure to include website links for each of these events in the show notes for more information, 
tickets and all that stuff. It's going to be good. And don't forget to put your podcasting apps on to auto download so you never miss a new episode. It's also super helpful for the show and very much appreciated if you leave a review. Apple Podcasts does have a review platform built in. Spotify, I know that they have, there's a question and answer thing that I have set up there where people can leave comments as well. Uh, But Apple Podcasts is probably the go-to spot for that. But again, it's always super appreciated and helps out the show a lot. Now, the show is supposed to be on a bi-weekly release schedule, but sometimes life happens. And near the end of the last season of the show, I was having a real hard time keeping on to that schedule uh, because of life things, curveballs and all that. So if you're ever wondering why there hasn't been a new episode posted, make sure to follow me over on social media. I'm usually posting content there most days in the form of short form videos. I'm currently working through still a cryptids and legends iceberg and pretty deep into it so far, but there's a lot more to cover. So if you want to check out more content from me, Beyond the podcast, that's definitely the place to do it. You can find me on Instagram. That's kind of my headquarters on social media, as well as Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I also have an X and Threads as well, although I rarely post things on those platforms just because there's always so much going on. But as always, the links for all of that will be in the show notes. And if you ever have any other feedback, stories you want to share, or constructive thoughts, you can always DM me over on Instagram or send an email to info at strangeology.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And a couple more things before we get started here. I wanted to give a big welcome and shout out to new Patreon members, Michelle and Barbara. Thank you both so much for joining and for the support. If you want to support what I do with Strangeology, with the podcast, all the social media content, the YouTube channel. One way to do it is to become a member of my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash strangeology. I've got a number of tiers with different benefits, all starting at as little as $1 per month. Some of the perks include shoutouts, voting power on topics for me to cover, behind the scenes looks at what I do, ad-free episodes, and early access to new episodes as well along with access to Strangeology Beyond, which is the episode extension for members only. That's sometimes a whole other episode topic in and of itself. There's also exclusive merch, discounts to my Etsy shop, and even a t-shirt of the month club. It's a great time, and I hope to see you there. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash strangeology. Also, don't forget to check out my merch over at strangeology.etsy.com, where I've got a wide assortment of cryptid, alien, and otherwise Fortean designs on products like t-shirts, long sleeves, tank tops, sweatshirts, hoodies, stickers, magnets, pins, blankets, mugs, tumblers, hats, and probably more things that I'm forgetting. Again, that's strangeology.etsy.com. I appreciate the support. Well, why don't we get into the episode now? On this edition of the show, I brought on a very special guest, someone that I've been meaning to have on for 
quite a while and finally had the opportunity to set something up and sit down and chat with none other than Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters, talking about how Small Town Monsters came to be, their process with filmmaking, strange experiences in the field, and what's coming up for STM in 2024. And just a quick note about the audio quality for this episode. There was some technical difficulties on my end for the recording. So my audio doesn't sound as good as it usually does. Uh, Seth's on the other end sounds fantastic. So just a quick note before we get started. All right. And with that out of the way, let's get into it. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today, I've got a very special guest with me, someone I've been wanting to have on for quite a while, the one and only Seth Breedlove. And just as a a brief introduction, maybe you can add in a little bit more after, but Seth is a filmmaker and the mastermind behind Small Town Monsters, which if you're not familiar with, you should be at this point. They're an independent film company that's produced several very well done documentaries, miniseries on cryptids, strange local legends, paranormal stuff, UFOs. Some of the most recent releases they've done are The Dogman Triangle, Werewolves in the Lone Star State, and Land of the Missing, which is part of the On the Trail of Bigfoot series. But without further ado, thank you so much, Seth, for being here. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm good. I was editing the Dogman Territory movie, which is why I was late for for hopping on here so i'm good i'm i'm good i i haven't we're we're in like this weird state as a company where we went for basically a year with pretty pretty much like one kind of i was editing kind of stuff i'd already had experience editing got a little boring so i'm kind of excited about editing dogman territory because it's something new for me eli edited the first movie um and also, it's like our only sort of traditional STM movie coming out this year because everything else is like on the trail of Bigfoot or Cryptid or Lost Contact, which is kind of unlike anything else we've made. Um, so I was I'm excited to like get into this edit for some reason. I, I was on the phone yesterday with Brandon talking about music, and then we were bringing on like a sound designer again on this one. So. It's one of those projects I've been also we we shoot things so far out like Land of the Missing had been shot over a year before I actually got to edit it. Um, So this one is relatively recent for me. So it's kind of fresh in my mind because we shot it back in like November. Right on. Yeah. Uh, When the inspiration strikes, when you get to work on this stuff, I mean, at least in my experience, it's it's always nicer to get right into something. Um, I always find if I, if I get delayed on editing something or, or working on my own content and it takes a while to get back to it, it's just like, Oh, like, where was I with all yeah. this stuff for sure? No, that's when I'm, when I'm on a shoot too, I have all these ideas. And then if I don't write it down, it kind of goes away. And also, even if I do write it down, I lose the, the entire gist of what I was doing in the first place. Yep. So I find I find that it's way easier to go right from a shoot into the edit, but it hasn't happened. I can't remember the last time I w- that would have actually happened. It's been a very, very long time. Maybe the YouTube stuff has kind of 
we were shooting like I did that Mountain State Monsters series this year. And that was like we would go film something and then I would edit it. But even then, like the interviews had been shot for almost a year. So the in the field stuff would be more recent, but the interviews themselves were far in the past. And then you also get into with the episodic stuff it gets tough because then I'm like trying to remember what I actually covered in the previous episode, which might have been edited like two or three months in the past. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. The the joys of uh, of directing and creating all this stuff. But um, I want to I want to ask you right off the bat. Um, just for for listeners out there who might not know, can you talk about you know the origin of a story of, of small town monsters? The how did it all come to be? Um, yeah, as a well, I mean the term small town monsters was created in 2013. Um, I had put together a book proposal for a uh, for a book um, called Small Town Monsters. Um, and it was going to be kind of like a case book and go through all these cases around the U S not just Bigfoot, but I know I had the Dover demon in there, the Flatwoods monster Mothman were also involved. Bray road might've been in there. Minerva monster was the big one. Um, Whitehall and the Falk monster. I can't remember what else was on that initial, maybe Momo. Uh, Momo was always a favorite of mine. So we had, I had put that book proposal together while I was working my medical billing job. And um, I was also writing freelance for the newspaper at the time. Um, before I started doing filmmaking, I, I was a writer. Um, so I, I had sent the um, proposal around to like all the known paranormal publishers and they all rejected it. Um, and so I kind of just left it sit for about a year. Um, and then, <clears throat> and then, um, I met these two guys at a Bigfoot conference who had like film equipment who wanted to make a documentary. And I talked about how I wanted to make a documentary. So we kind of linked up and made, started filming in July of 2014, our first movie, the Minerva monster, which I had already done a lot of the preliminary work for that um, project while I was doing the book, because I had started writing the Minerva chapter of the book and I had interviewed some of the members of the family, the Caton family who are involved in the Minerva case for anyone that doesn't know the Minerva monster was like this Bigfoot uh, ongoing Bigfoot report. You would almost call it like sort of one of the earliest case, cases of habituation. Uh, so right. this is like ni- 1978 and the family was just having constant interaction with this creature coming down off the hill behind their house that had two, uh, two babies as well. It was also occasionally seen with what, uh some people described as like black panthers um i don't know if that's what people were actually seeing or that they were seeing the young ones because there there is a report from around the same time um by by a guy and it's actually in the movie but he talks about seeing two little ones uh but they would walk um on all four so uh, on all four, you know, on all fours um i used to be a writer uh, <laughs> but the the um the the case like evolved over time eventually the family called the police because this thing was kind of getting aggressive it, it might have killed uh, their dog they called the police and then after you know it's like all these small town cases they all have the same sort of blueprint which is it hits the media and then it blows up locally um in the case of the minerva monster it blew up nationally that there were 
there were um, TV crews there from Japan and Germany that showed up too. So it was kind of a big story for a little while, but the town kind of forgot about it. But I, I had grown up aware of the Minerva monster just through kids in the town that I grew up in Bolivar, which is about 20 miles West of, I don't even, as the crow flies, it's probably 10 miles, but you know, a 20 mile drive to, to Minerva, but everyone would say like, don't go out in the woods after dark or the Minerva monster will get you. Um, I had no idea what that was until I was in my twenties. Um, but, but, but so we, I had done all this preliminary research. Me and these guys decided we were going to make a movie and the movie movie was called the Minerva monster. At the time I was writing for local newspapers. So I used my media contacts to drum up a bunch of interest in the movie. Um, and it exploded regionally anyway, here in Ohio. Um, like, there were probably 30 or 40 um, front page stories done about the Minerva monster. There was three just in Canton alone, you know, on the, on the cover of the Canton repository and stuff like that about the story. So um, we put together a festival based around premiering the movie. And then that kind of blew up as well. And we ended up with 1200 people at the festival to watch this movie. And so we, we didn't make a dime on the movie, but we, we made back what we spent on it, which is kind of like, the big deal. So we just took what we had spent and gotten back and put that into making beast of Whitehall sometime during the creation of beast of Whitehall. I got into a, a pretty serious argument, creative disagreement with the guys I was making that movie with who had also uh, made Minerva with me and we split and went our separate ways. Um, and that's kind of the creation of small town monsters at that point was, I just was like, well, we'll do this on our own. I went out and bought my own camera and, started, you know, teaching myself how to film and edit and Whitehall was the first thing I edited. Um, Minerva was our first movie, but Beast of Whitehall was the first editing that I ever did. And you can tell if you, <laughs> you can tell it's like the first movie I shot or edited. Um, there's a lot of focus issues in that movie. Um, but, you know, we just flipped what we made from movie to movie into the next movie. And we were doing Kickstarters during all that as well. And we just, grew over time every year there's like a growth that happens within the company and sometimes you see it and sometimes you don't for the last two years it's been really obvious the the growth that's happened just because we started you know creating a staff uh, in 2020 i guess it would have been 2021 is when we started hiring people regularly and now we're we're up to nine people 10 people i guess now that's the work here that's amazing <laughs> that's awesome um yeah. Well, thanks for, for the, uh, the 101, uh, 101 on small town monsters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was, was the Minerva case kind of, you, you mentioned, you know, you weren't really into or aware of a lot of like cryptid stuff no. maybe growing, growing up, but, um, mm -hmm. was the Minerva case really kind of like the catalyst that got you interested in all this stuff or was there no. something else? Yeah, it wasn't the catalyst. It's my favorite cryptid story, but it's not, the catalyst, the catalyst is just boredom. Um, and like, it was, everything happened at like a really specific time in my life where um, I had gone through a divorce uh, and I was doing a lot of work at my church and the guy that ran the soundboard at the church thought I was a weirdo like him. He was a weirdo. And he was like, this guy's weird. He must like paranormal encrypted stuff. So he burned me a DVD of uh like documentaries he had recorded 
on on television. One was about Bigfoot. All I remember about the one about Bigfoot is that it had Scott Harriet's Bigfoot footage in it. Um, which if anyone knows, I know Scott. Um, to me, I can't see anything in that footage, but a lot of people think that's like very good footage of Bigfoot. But I remember that was one. There was one about lake monsters because it had some stuff about Ogopogo, Champ, and Loch Ness in it. And then the other one was was UFO related. And he gave it to me and I watched it just because I was bored and it clicked and I was into it. And then I read, um, there's a book by Lauren Coleman and somebody else that's like a collection of Bigfoot cases or like a Bigfoot case book or something like that. Yeah. Which probably played into my idea for my small town monsters book. But um, I was reading that book and that was when I read um, the entry on the Minerva monster and, and then it kind of clicked. And then I was super fascinated by that. Yeah. It was like, well, this happened right down the road from my, my parents' house. And I remember hearing about this when I was a kid. And then what happened from there is the guy at church who had given me the DVD, he, he had a, um, his dentist, this is weird, but like his dentist owned a ranch down in Bolivar, which is the town I grew up in. And she had told him he had at some point while he was at the dentist, apparently mentioned that he was into Bigfoot, the topic. And she was like, Oh, you should come down to my ranch sometime. We see him all the time. And so he ended up interviewing her about not interviewing, but you know, like kind of getting the full story on it, which was that I, I I've talked about this recently, but this is the weirdest Bigfoot case I've ever actually heard because it, I've met the witnesses and they're so believable. The, the husband of this lady, the dentist, um, was the DA in, in the district attorney in, in Canton. So like, and she has this like really prominent practice, uh, her kids, her kids run the practice now. I think she retired, but, um, very believable. So the story goes that like, basically as long as they've owned this property, um, they've been encountering Bigfoot in the woods behind their house. And not just like one Bigfoot, but a family of Bigfoots like young. Um, so, and it gets so crazy that like, she's claimed that they can feed them and they'll follow them on horseback into their, into the woods. And there's a cave back there that they live in. And um, I've never been to the property. I haven't even been able to, actually figure out which ranch is theirs back there. But the interesting thing about that road, so all this happened on St. Peter's Church Road, um, which is a little road uh, just south of Bolivar, headed down towards Strasburg. For anyone familiar with Don Keating, he was an Ohio Bigfoot researcher. He put together this uh, Sasquatch Triangle, like a map of Sasquatch, you know, sightings that seem to create basically Ohio's version of the Dogman Triangle and like my Sasquatch. Sure, um, sure. And the northern tip of that is this is the village of Strasburg, which is just south of Bolivar. So it 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 was interesting to me that there was a history of sightings in this area. And then I went back there for myself and anyone that's watched on the trail of Bigfoot, the legend, I think the first episode actually opens on that road with us talking about all this. But um, we were, I would go down there at the time I was working for my parents in Bolivar. And so on my lunch break, I would drive 
down to St. Peter's Church Road and park and walk the road. And one day I talked to an elderly couple I saw walking down the road and asked them if they had ever experienced anything. And they kind of like laughed it off at first. But then the guy was like, well, you know, in the 70s, there were all sorts of sightings down here. When he proceeded to tell me about sightings that had happened on that road. And in fact, he had found a deer ripped in half and stuffed up in a tree in the 70s. But he also told me there were UFO sightings and all this stuff down there. And I do know as a kid, we grew up, we grew up in Bolivar, but behind my, my parents' house is in a neighborhood, but behind their house is this big field and then the Tuscarawas River. And then on the other side of the river is St. Peter's Church Road. And I do remember as a kid, there were stories about satanic cults and stuff in the woods behind the, you know, on uh, down by the river and all this stuff. So there's definitely a lot of lore connected with that area. We actually filmed the posse sequence from Momo back in there. Oh, gotcha. but, um, so, so anyway, that was like my first time talking to a, a witness was like talking to these two older people. Um, I thought there was a lot to the story. I didn't know if there were still Bigfoot in the area, but I was, totally on board with that being like suitable habitat, mostly because of that property that land all around that road and French Hill road and all that um, was privately owned. And most of it was formerly strip mined and there were caves um, all over back in there. So, um, and a lot of anyone that did live in the area owned a farm or a ranch that butted up against that area. In fact, there was a, there still is a, um, a, a huge, like maybe a hundred acres, something like that of property that's owned by a wolf uh, rehabilitation place. So they bring wolves in and they, you know, yeah. Rehab them. <laughs> yeah. So, we have a place like that in new England, like in, yeah. I think in Southern New Hampshire or, or uh, Massachusetts. I went there on a field trip once when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it's, it's really interesting. And, and the area, it's just like, if you go to, now, if you go there today, they started selling parcels of it off and now it's like kind of grown up back there. There's actually a development that butts right up against it, but it still is kind of creepy at night. It doesn't look like Ohio, at least not, not the Bolivar part of Ohio. It looks like you're in West Virginia, like big, big Hills, deep, deep hollers, a lot of creeks and things like that. And it's just on the other side of the river from my parents' house. Wow. That's super interesting that, you know, you grew up in this area that has all this, activity going on um yeah and really it's kind of uh it seems that whole area west virginia ohio kentucky is just like this hot spot of all this high strangeness um now i mean small town monsters really you know what you're doing stays true to the namesake of of the company uh uh you cover a lot of lesser known events and cryptids um, that people have reportedly encountered over the years. Why do you think that small towns lend themselves so well to these types of, of legends and folklore? And, you know, why does all this stuff seem to, to happen in these, these smaller areas? I mean, I think, I think it happens everywhere, but I do think, um, I think the media plays a huge part in it to be, <laughs> to be a hundred percent on it. Fair. Yeah. Like, like, I think, I think, you know, not that this stuff doesn't happen, but it does seem like when it happens in a small community, the, the, 
the local newspapers get involved pretty quick. At least they did, you know, in the seventies. And if you think about like when the height of like monster hysteria was, it was the seventies. It was like the mid to late seventies is like the, a lot of the cases that we still talk about today happened in that time frame. Um, and specifically between like 72 and 78. Um, I don't know what it is about that, but I think that community gets involved in a way that, you know, like especially a small town where everyone kind of knows everyone it's spread. The word spreads pretty quickly. And so there's, there's that. Um, and, and, you know, eventually if the town is smart enough, they'll capitalize on that, you know, in the way that point pleasant did or Falk, um, you know, but then you have your Minervas where they completely ignore it, you know, 40, 50 years later, don't really want anything to do with it too. So it kind of depends. Like if the community will embrace it, I feel like you're, they're doing a, the lion's share of, of making sure that story stays alive. If they kind of like don't care, it's, it will eventually disappear regardless of how many television shows or whatever, you know, are made about it. Um, but you do have places like Roswell or whatever, where they, they understand it and they see the value in it. Um, whether or not the story actually happened is kind of like irrelevant. Um, like if, if there's any truth to it or not, it's kind of irrelevant. Um, it's important to document that aspect of a town's history. And I think that's, you know, that's overlooked a lot of the time people want, especially now that we've focused more on YouTube, you really see how much, the the audience the people out there that are into this stuff um they don't necessarily care about the history of it they want evidence everything is like where's the evidence that this happened or you know yeah what's and the I've never been, yeah and i've never been i've never been that interested in that like uh, I, I i love the stories and i like to tell them and be a part of telling them um, and it says something about the culture of these communities and things like that too. So there's loftier reasons for doing it, but at the end of the day, I just like a good story. And, and I think that's what drew me to all this to begin with was just, you know, I grew up in a family of storytellers. It like runs back to my dad's, my dad's family. As far as I know, they were, they were like big time storytellers in the hills of, of North Carolina in the middle of nowhere. So it had to have been passed down from there, but that's, I'm drawn to the stories more so than, you know, the evidence of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole study uh, of cryptozoology and anything paranormal is, is largely, it's kind of a big part of being human is storytelling and, it it really ties into the culture, like you said. Um, absolutely. Now I, I'm curious, Seth. Um, how do you go about deciding which which towns, which stories uh, that you're going to tackle? Uh, what's the process of that like? It's changed a lot because of Heather, um, and I guess Aaron now too, because Aaron is is coming on full time with SDM in a story capacity. Um, so, yeah, but it's, it's definitely morphed. I mean, I went from, you know, Minerva, it was an easy, it was right down the road from where I lived. We could make it for, we made that movie for $500. Um, so it was, you know, it's right down the road. Whitehall came about because the day we premiered Minerva at the Ohio Bigfoot conference, I found out that 
um, one of the original witnesses had died. One of the original Whitehall witnesses had died. And so I was just like, we better do this now because it might not happen. Um, so we made that. And then Falk was just a natural um, to go do. And then Mothman just kind of like, obviously. The one that was weird was Invasion on Chestnut Ridge. Because that was literally like Mark and I just really liked Stan Gordon and yeah. and and the the general vibe of that area. And I had an idea to like really go all in on like a style that mirrored like unsolved mysteries and the stuff we grew up with. So that one just fell that way. But I don't know. I always say the the way I personally am drawn to a story is through the the people involved, not the monster or or the phenomenon or whatever. Um, I can't think of a movie I've made where I went into it because I was like, I have to make a Flatwoods movie, maybe Momo, but even that one, like what really drew me into that once I found out the, the full story of it was what, you know, how, how it impacted the family how the family basically wants nothing to do with the Momo story anymore because of the ridicule they received and that kind of thing. So sure. I'm always drawn to the, to the human side of it more so than anything. And then if I have like a fun idea for how to tell the story, you know, like Jersey, Jersey devil, I can't say necessarily that I was drawn to any human element of that because it's a movie that is comprised of interviews with experts. There isn't, as far as I remember, there's not a single witness in our Jersey devil movie. It's, it's sort of experts talking about, Right. You know, the, the history of that. But I had an idea for how to take, uh, how to marry like narrative sections of the movie and then tie it back into the, the doc part. So that was why we made that Jersey Devil movie. Um, yeah, typically it's, it's the people and the people's stories more so than, you know, like any one monster. I mean, I was watching, I've been watching, um, Cause we're, we're re-releasing on the trail of UFOs on, on um, YouTube and we're getting ready to do a season two of on the trail of UFOs. And the whole point of on the trail of UFOs season one is to shift the focus back to like the witnesses, because right now everything is about the, you know, like, like, uh, hearings going on in Washington and politics of it. And then you've got the UFO community just eating itself on Twitter or whatever, you know, like that's, that's what they do. And, and so the whole point of that show is like, let's put the focus back on the people who've actually claimed to see something, maybe, you know, whether they're a, a military vet or not, because right now that's the hot thing. It's kind of like, you know, like if, if an air force pilot, has seen something, then that takes precedence over 20 other reports that come in. So um, I think at the end of the day, I'm, I'm much more interested in the people involved in the stuff than I am in the phenomena itself, whatever it might be. But I do love, like, I love one thing I'm really excited about this year is that we're delving back into a lot of the lesser known subjects you know, like Alex is doing strange places now, which is basically like a, you know, a, a, a look at more of the bizarre history of places rather than any one topic. Yeah. Um, and he's still going to do Bigfoot beyond the trail, but like strange places is going to be that um, Eli's doing an Ogopogo movie. Um, 
you know, lost contact is about the Thomas Mantel case, which is a well-known case within the UFO world. But outside of it, I don't know that people are super aware of that. Um, and then this dogman territory thing, like land between the lakes is something that we know within the community, but outside of it, no one has a clue what, what that is. I mean, LBL is not exactly a well, <laughs> well attended national recreation area at all. Like there's hardly yeah. anyone there. Um, and so shining the light, I mean, we're, we're doing a, a special for YouTube this year. That's about mermaids. So there's, there's a lot of like the smaller topics that we kind of had to put on hold for a couple of years just because of the growth that was going on within the company. And also the, I mean, it's been a nightmare, like dealing with distributors. So you had to be, we had to yeah. be very cog- cognizant of like, this has to make money or we might go under, but now we're, I think this year, especially we're to a place where we can experiment more and start covering a lot of the smaller topics that we kind of like started out with. I mean, it's not like anyone knew what the Minerva monster was or even the beast of Whitehall, um, which like that, the beast of Whitehall name is a name we gave to the movie. No one had ever called beast of Whitehall beast of Whitehall, but now I see like that has caught on. Like that is what people know it as is the beast of Whitehall. Yeah. But originally, yeah. Originally we were going to call, we were going to call it what the newspapers called it, but I can't, I think that might've just been like the Whitehall creature or something like that. Um, but if you look, there's only one newspaper article I could find that actually referred to it as a beast. Um, and I don't know that there's anything that I found that directly called it the beast of Whitehall until the movie came out. So that was, I think that's fun. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not far from, from Whitehall myself. I'm just like a couple hours. Um, you know, they, I love they, it there. they do the festival in the fall, which I've, I've gone yeah. to a couple of times now. It's great. Um, yeah, you know, it's, uh, you go down to these small towns that have these legends and if you're there, I mean, you guys, the team goes out you go on location and you know, a lot of the times when you're in these, these places you, and you can feel it kind of, mm-hmm. you know, it's see, I don't, I haven't had that. People tell me that the, the, the weirdness factor rarely happens for me. The, the, there are exceptions like, I mean, going to the TNT area in Point Pleasant and then tell me there isn't a weird vibe to that place. But like for the most part, when I go to a place, I end up falling in love with it for other reasons entirely. Like even Point Pleasant, the first time everyone kept telling me when you go to Point Pleasant, um, there's a real weird vibe. It's like real spooky. And I, I went there and sat on the banks of the Ohio River where the Ohio meets the Kanawha River. And I I was... I felt it was like a very peaceful spot and my, my whole life, like I've, I've not my whole life, but since I started going there, that's kind of the vibe I get there. I had looked into moving there at one point. Like I just really like the place. Um, the, the biggest exception to that would be the land between the lakes. Like I was just talking to Brandon yesterday about this, but like when you go, when you're approaching LBL 20 minutes out, there's a, just a weird, something weird vibe or whatever about that whole area that stays with you the entirety of the time you're there. Um, and I don't quite understand it. You know, it's a, it's a weird, it's definitely a weird place. Um, whether it's the history of the area itself and like, I'm aware of this dog man stuff. And so because of that, 
you're you're more cognizant of it or if it's if it's the other history of the area which is like people being run out of their homes and you know 2000 some people were displaced in that area right and so, yeah uh, um joe and jesse i think it was jesse who talked about this from from hellbent holler jesse was had a really good way of putting it which was like it's almost like the sadness and the blood spilled over the years and that place is like seeped into the ground itself and like it's just prevalent everywhere you go yeah um but there's a weird vibe to that place for sure it definitely seems like it and uh jesse and joe have been on my show before and just like hearing about what they've gone through hearing some other accounts it's places like that where it's just kind of like in the soil and you can't really quantify it or explain yeah. it. it's definitely weird um yeah, yeah. uh I wanted to, to circle back because you mentioned, uh, you know, you're doing um, some follow ups uh, with uh, things you've done before. Do you have any any plans to do like follow ups like you did with Mothman, like Mothman Legacy to any of the other stories or are those kind of uh, a closed book and you're just kind of moving on to uh, new topics? Um, I, I mean, the. The well on the, on the trail of UFOs, but that's a s- series, so it's a little different. That was always supposed to be episodic. It's just we had to shift into making those into movies because the distributor didn't want to distribute episodic series. But now that we've kind of regained control of our own future at this point, uh, we're able to do it. Um, uh, American Werewolves Two is about to come out on March fifteenth. Finally. Um, Kickstarter backers saw it months ago, but the general public hasn't seen it yet. That's definitely revisiting, you know, the whole dogman phenomenon through that like eighties filtered lens that we, we did with the first one. Um, dogman territory is a sequel, but I can't, I can't think of anything else that I've talked about recently. That would be a sequel. I will tell you my, my son is obsessed with our Flatwoods monster movie and watches nice. it like probably a couple times a week. And I have promised him that at some point I will make like a narrative Flatwoods monster movie. So that would be revisiting something, but there's nothing I can think of. That's like a direct sequel on the table right now. Mothman legacy. A lot of people don't know this, but Mothman legacy was a massive flop. Like we, the Mothman of point pleasant is one of the biggest, if not the biggest movie we ever made. Yeah. Um, Mothman legacy came out as the first release that we did under our, our old distributor. And they kind of create, I'd never worked with like a big distributor before. And they kind of did this whole uh, marketing campaign that ended up, I had to pay for, which I didn't realize. <laughs> and so the movie came out and did not do gangbusters by any stretch of the imagination. And so that ended up being like a massive flop for us which I don't think is necessarily because of the topic or anything, but because of that, I've always been leery of doing like direct sequels to the sort of like, you know, the small town monster movies. Cause there's, I kind of like think of it. And I mean, this is getting expanded on every year or two as more and more people come in, but I kind of think of our movies as like two different types. You have the traditional 
small town monster feature films, which are Mothman Legacy, Bray Road Beasts, Minerva, you know, like those, the classic, like focus on a small town and its monster. And then there's the more like on the trail of approach, which is a lot of like in the field stuff, um, less of a focus on a community, much more of a focus on the people involved and things like that. That'd be like on the trail of Bigfoot. And I guess Dogman territory and Dogman Triangle are kind of nice because they kind of marry the two approaches. And especially with Dogman territory, the one I'm working on, I really want to try to to bring in like a, a new approach to that that kind of marries you know, the, you're, you're actually tracking with investigators, but you're also hearing these stories and experiencing the area and the history of the area. Um, while, while, you know, those movies, the, the traditional small town monsters movies were also sort of known for being for what we were spending, especially for being really high production value. So I wanted to try to do that, you know, with Dogman territory as well. So I don't remember the question. I just rambled for like, no, that's, minutes. that's great. I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, what are some of the, like the biggest, uh, the hurdles and challenges that you run into with filming all of these movies? Um, I know you, you've mentioned the distributor a few times being kind of a, a thorn in your side recently, but yeah. uh, you know, what, uh, what are some of the logistical challenges that you, you find yourself dealing with? Um. That's a really good question. The, I mean, honestly, anymore, it's the fact that we, we, two years ago, we did this Alaska shoot and it was 17 days, which is the longest shoot we've ever done. Um, you know, in that time we managed to get two movies shot and three episodes of Alex's BTT, but we did that in 17 days. We just finished up the Dogman territory shoot in November. It was a three day shoot. We shot the entire movie. We shot two episodes of a Sasquatch on Earth miniseries. And then Alex got like three episodes out of BTT and Strange Places as well. And we did that in three days. So for me, it's actually been let's focus or let's let's find a way to be in the field less. As crazy as that sounds, because you know, the fact is we all have family. <laughs> like I have a I have a son. Uh Courtney has a daughter. Um, Heather has kids like every, a, a lot of the crew, you know, is either married or dating or engaged or have children. And so the days of being gone for like 17 days without it being a problem are over. Um, <laughs> yes. So the, our biggest challenge is just balancing, you know, work and family life. I think I, I know that's my biggest challenge because um, you kind of like the it was so starting out doing this was so romantic. Like the entire thing just seemed in the early days was so crazy. Cause I, you know, I'd pack my bags and I'd leave for like five, six days with my buddies and we'd go film a movie in the woods and you're like, Oh, I'm a filmmaker. Oh, but the reality of what that does over the span of 10 years, which is what we're at now is like, it's a lot of time away. Um, you know, when you have a six year old, I don't really want to miss anything. Um, he has basketball practice on Thursdays and basketball games on Saturdays. And so I try to like plan my time around that. And so it's, it's actually been the biggest thing for us has been shortening the time that we're in the field. But when you've got a team of like 10 people who can show up in a place and do everything, you know, like we're, we're kind of operating on muscle memory at this point. Um, you know, you can, it's, it's much more possible. I think, 
you know, when I was handling it, actually getting people to agree to do interviews and then scheduling those interviews was the biggest part of pre-production. Oftentimes I would get to a shoot with no idea of what the style of the movie was or, you know, like there would have been very little planning that went into like what gear we were taking or any of that stuff. Cause you spend so much time trying to convince people to do an interview. Um, yeah. I was going to ask, you know, how do you go about finding locals and people who are willing to talk? You know, it seems like in, in these rural towns, a lot of people don't want to no, give up yeah. their secrets and share their stories with outsiders. You know, what's that been like during well, this whole the, thing? The best thing about, the company right now is I don't have to deal with it anymore. (laughs) That's, that's Heather's job. So, um, I mean, when I was doing it, it was, it was literally finding people that were connected to the case, you know, with the like beast of Whitehall, there were names, there was Brian Gosselin and there was Bill Bran and there was, you know, Paul Bartholomew kind of came along later, wasn't there during the initial stuff, but those were the three guys who I contacted during, during the initial phase of like, you know, researching that movie. And it was a lot of phone call time and convincing them that I was capable of telling the story. Um, I spent a lot of time too. I don't know. I, I know Heather does this too. You spend more time just talking to these people about things not at all related to their experience and then you do actually talking about the experience. It's kind of like, um, you just, they're earning their trust, I guess. Sure. You're, yeah. You're going through this whole process of, you can trust me to not make you look like a fool, you know, on camera or whatever. So that's, that was the biggest thing for me. And, and I know Heather and I approach it a little differently. Heather uses social media way more than I did. I didn't use social media. I would use newspaper articles or magazine articles or whatever. And then I would literally use like white pages (laughs) premium to go find people's phone number and then track them down that way and talk to them, you know, and I think Heather has a much, uh, probably, uh, less intrusive approach to it than I did. Um, so I, I don't know though. We, we, I'm aware, like when we're talking about pre-pro on a movie and, and coming up with a story, we talk a lot about who's going to be involved, but, but there does come a point where Heather just starts adding names to these lists. And I have no, no idea who the people are till we get to the location and, and meet them. Um, so that's been, that's different. And sometimes it's a challenge because, I'm used to knowing their story going into it and kind of knowing I, I got to get from point A to point B. And now it's kind of like learning their story during the shoot itself, which is, you know, a different, different approach to things. But um, at the same time, she's alleviated so much of the stress that goes into a shoot by being there, you know, being the one that does that. Gotcha. Yeah. That's definitely uh, great to have. Heather, as a resource to, to take that burden off your plate as you know, as things go on and things grow, you can only do so much as one person. So, you know, definitely kudos there for, for her taking that on. Um, I'm wondering what are some of the, the wildest or most interesting stories that you've, you've heard from witnesses over the years. Can you share a couple? Yeah. Um, the the most i mean maybe it's just cuz it's more present on my mind cuz we just interviewed him again but martin groves encounter 
um, from the yes. line between the lakes is really, it's the wildest because he is such a believable witness. Um, and then it's also wild just because the story has some real twists and turns. Yeah. He was I at mean, monster fest last year. Right. And Jeremiah yeah. from Bigfoot society talked to him. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but you know, we were the first people to interview him. Heather found him just randomly. He, he wanted nothing to do with this stuff. Didn't want to tell the story. And she somehow convinced him to come on camera in American werewolves. We were the first people to interview him. Um, and that was thanks to Heather. So Martin's story involves uh, uh, an encounter in the land between the lakes that, I mean, it's hard to put it into, it's a very sprawling story. <laughs> I mean, over the course of like two days and with multiple sort of encounters along the way, but it boils down to, he was escorted out of a camping area by Bigfoot's apparently to save him from dogmans that were stalking them. So, I mean, it, just saying it sounds wild, but when you yeah. hear him tell it, I mean, he's a very, very believable witness. Now, when we shot Dogman territory, he actually took us to the, to the location um, where all this happened, which was, which is pretty crazy. We went to the site where all of that happened. Um, and he broke down in tears during that interview. Um, so yeah, he's probably one of them. The the one that stands out, maybe this is another thing where my son has been watching Terror in the Skies a lot. Uh and one of the stories, I can't remember the witness's name, but it involves seeing a pterodactyl uh while he was uh, I think duck hunting or pheasant hunting, something like that, with a friend sees like a, a pterodactyl. Uh him and his friend both saw it. Very believable witness. Um, really wild story, uh, but kind of in line with, you know, the winged cryptids that seem to inhabit Illinois. Yeah. Um, uh, so that, those two are the, the ones that stand out as being the most, you know, I guess the standouts for me, I don't know why it is weird. Like when you consider I've, I've done probably a hundred witness interviews. I've conducted close to 300 w interviews, but I would say, you know, well over half that is investigators and things like that, but at least a hundred witness interviews, if not more. Um, so I don't know what it is about specific stories that will stand out, you know, over time in a way that others don't, um, especially when it comes to like specific encounters that were had and things like that. I, I think it's just like the movies. I'm drawn to the people more than, you know, Freddie May, Fred, Fred May and Ed May um, from Flatwoods will always be one of my favorite experiences because Ed had never told his story on camera. Um, and we convinced them. I, I kind of tricked him. He owned a, a house that was a civil war. It was owned. It was, it was, um, he lives near, what is the place called? He he lives near Greenbrier in West Virginia. Okay. Um, but his house is like a, a historical house. My dad was a, a Civil War buff back in the day, and my mama owned a historical bookstore. And so I tricked Ed into being in the movie by bringing my dad along to interview Fred because Fred was staying at Ed's house. My dad and Ed hit it off, and then 
And then I asked Ed if he would be in the movie. And my dad kind of interjected, a, I think you should do it. And he did it. So that was how I, that was how I got those interviews. But that, you know, that's probably, that's probably my favorite interview I've ever conducted just because I was able to be there. And now Fred's gone. So, you know, and so having that story captured is, is really good, especially because we didn't do what all the other television shows did, which was kind of make it seem like they saw a green lizard creature that was 12 feet tall. You know, like that's not at all what they said they saw. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's an awesome. Uh, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, are there certain uh, topics, um, cryptids or UFOs that you find the small towns audience resonating with more? Are there people that reach out? They're like, Hey, you need to cover more of this or that, or, well, yeah, I mean, this is where things have gotten irritating in the last year. So, oh no. <laughs> so, so the 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 audience that built up around small town monsters, I think, was there because of some of the lesser known cryptids. You know, like Dogman, um, not Dogman, Mothman, really popped off for us because it wasn't something that was super in the mainstream at the time. It is now, but in 2016 2017 when that movie came out the festival was kind of just getting rolling you know i think the the attendance that year was like 10,000 um so we we were like ahead of the curve uh right before like all the all the television networks started covering it and everything um they people loved mothman and they kept begging for more mothman which made it even more bizarre when mothman legacy came out no one watched it but um, I would say, you know, the, the largest audience that we have is here for Bigfoot and, and then you have, you know, a, an, another segment of the audience that's here for the weirder stuff. Um, Bigfoot and Dogman year to year seems to be like the go-to, like we can put that stuff out and it will do well. Um, and then everything else is kind of hit and miss, but ultimately I don't want us to be, I don't want us to be cornered into only doing Bigfoot and Dogman content. And that's where we were headed last year. Um, you know, and it just got, we didn't grow, we didn't become a company that way. Um, some of our biggest successes were movies that were not about like well-known topics. We did terror in the skies was a huge success, which it by all rights should not have been a huge success is a movie about, giant birds like you know like we leaned into the mothman thing to promote it but but it's mostly about you know thunderbird sightings um and we did that you know i did that just by deciding this is the movie i want to make this is a topic i'm interested in i want to do something that focuses a little bit on lauren coleman and his place in cryptozoology and you know and that movie came out and was a success. But then we do stuff like Momo where it's about Bigfoot, but it's really weird. Like it's a really weird movie and you know, it comes out and half the audience got it and half the audience hated it. So yeah, you kind of filmed it in a style that was, I mean, like Lyle was in it. Right. And everything was very like meta. (laughs) It was a, a very meta movie because it was a commentary on, those seventies horror movies, like the seventies creature movies that we all love and how they, 
kind of overwrite the actual history, how, how film can kind of overwrite or pop culture in general can kind of overwrite the actual history of these stories. Um, it was also kind of a parody of television, uh, stuff like monsters and mysteries on, on TV. Um, we were kind of parodying Lyle. Lyle was kind of parodying himself in in that movie. Um, and so you kind of had to be, it was very inside baseball. Like you had to, yeah. you had to get what we were going for to actually like the movie. And like I said, some people did and some people don't. And so the thing I have found is like the, the movies that are narrative heavy seem to not connect. Um, Cause we've made two of those that were heavily narrative. Um, Mo- Momo and Jersey devil. And neither of those ever found an audience. Um, and so that has kind of informed my approach to this stuff anyway. Uh, I think going forward, it will, the movies will be just a documentary or they will be a narrative because there is going to come a point where we're going to start making narrative movies as a company. Um, so rather than try, try to marry the two too heavily, I'm trying to step back from that and focus on, you know, is this a documentary or, or is it a narrative? Um, and so, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. There's so much stuff that goes into, you know, the evolution, you know, sometimes you get to throw something at the wall, see if it sticks. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, we've operated that way. Everything we've done is trial and error um, because, you know, when we started out, there was no one doing what we're doing. And I still say today, there's no one doing what we're doing on the scale. We're doing it um, just because we have, movies we have episodic content we have books we have podcasts like and and it's all done independently which is the way you know if you're gonna want to to get this stuff in a in a way that is digestible to people who are actually into it rather than just like the general audience that like television networks are going after um it's got to be independence like you or you know me you know it's got to be us that actually give the audience what they want (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Making something that's more digestible and relatable <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, um, my next question for you is, um, uh, obviously you're, you're taking a, a step back from being in the field so much, but over the years being out in the field have, what's the most, have you ever run into situations where you've, found evidence beyond um, talking with witnesses and experts. Have you ever been out there during filming and, and something weird or, or scary happens that you're like, wait a second, like what's going on here? Yeah. I mean, until, until like, until like 2020, no, it, it just never happened. We never had anything happen. There were odd things that happened. Like I remember once being with my mom in one of the TNT bunkers and she saw something flying around in, in the, in the room, in the, in the bunker and tried to take a picture of it. And all that came out on the picture was like this white blur. And it was really, really weird. Cause it was completely dark in that bunker. So that was weird, but no, until, until 2020, I don't think much of anything happened. And, and, and then we did, um, 
Well, there was the incident in Oklahoma, I guess, and that was 2018. So that's not correct. But I was in, I, I, um, I went into Area X in Oklahoma with the NAWAC, uh, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. They had this location in in Oklahoma, um, in the Wachita National Forest. That is, um, they've been going in there for like twenty years, and they spend months out of the year in there in shifts. And I was allowed to go in uh, with Brian Brown and Daryl Collier, Kathy Strain, and Bob Strain back in twenty eighteen. And it was Adam and I um, went in and we, we experienced a lot of weirdness over the course of like two and a half, three days, but the, it culminated the night before we left um, literally like six hours before we left the area. Uh, We had a, a rock throw that, you know, middle of the night, 2 AM, we were just falling asleep. We had a rock uh, impact the metal outbuilding of, uh, they have like a metal outbuilding there that they call the, the hooch. So the, this rock hits the hooch, wakes me up. And then there was a very loud whoop followed by uh, laughter that went for, you know, like 10 seconds that, that we, the closest thing I can approximate it to would be a gibbon, uh, like gibbon laughter. And so that was the weirdest. Yeah. That was the weirdest thing that had happened to me in the field. Um, and then in 2021, I had a Bigfoot sighting at Heather's property um, while we were filming the Bigfoot project, uh, like a broad daylight sighting of this thing wow. running on, on a hill. Um, probably the weirdest thing that's happened was 2022. I think it was 2022. The beginning of the year, we were down on the Chestnut Ridge uh filming for um sasquatch unearthed the ridge and it was um i think four of us from the stm crew were there and then we were out with some investigators from pa and we all saw multiple lights like orbs in the woods um you know which is really weird but the weirdest part about it was that this also happened um to Zach, who is like our most skeptical member of the crew, uh, kind of laughs all of this off, honestly. Um, he saw lights like very, very close to him um, and and kind of freaked him out. Uh, we caught some of that on camera, too. So that, that was interesting. Wow. Uh, that's probably the weirdest thing. Those are that those are probably the big three, like the big weirdest things we've had happen. Yeah. Yeah. Ghost lights or something else. For sure. Yeah. You, you expect, you expect, you go to these places and you expect stuff to happen and you almost have to get to a point where you're desensitized to it or everything will be something. And so I'm sure there's an element of that. I might've been around weird stuff happening more than that, but you know, I'm so used to, you know, I remember going to Whitehall and going out to a bear road and walking into the field out to where they would have been when they had the encounter. And you're the entire time you're there, you know, we're there at night. Um, we would just go out there and sit on a bear road. Cause we were hoping for something to happen. And, and you're very aware of that history when you're in those places. So it's almost like you got to get, you almost have to turn that part of your brain off. So you're not just constantly looking for activity because otherwise everything that happens, you're going to associate with like Bigfoot or whatever phenomenon you're chasing at the time. Sure. Falco was the same way. Like, I mean, you go down into the river bottoms at night 
and there's every sound is like, what's that? Yeah. Every single thing happening down in there is, is going to be Bigfoot just because you're so aware of like the legend of Boggy Creek and all that stuff. Um, but you do get to a point where, you know, you know what? There, there was another one. There was one other incident that I've only talked about this a couple of times, but Brandon and I were filming a Japanese television show back in 2017 in the TNT area. And um, it was, it was, I say Brandon and I, but a bunch of the crew were there that night. Um, it was a really weird experience. We were in Point Pleasant for five days with this crew. We were out, you know, camping in the TNT area and all this stuff. Brandon and I had something happen in there that was much more Bigfoot centric <laughs> related than, than Mothman. It was like, we heard like weird samurai chatter and then something threw a rock at us. And that was that was a really weird incident, um, mostly because we were being hoaxed by a television crew at the same time that this was happening. So it was like they were trying to get us to go. They they had a guy set up in a tree, and we already knew what was happening, so we were refusing to go along with it. Oh, they had a guy hiding hiding in a tree, waiting to jump out. That was like half a mile away from us and they were desperately trying to get us to go back to that spot but we were having something happen out in this other part of the tnt area um and so we were refusing to go with them they eventually left us they (laughs) they left brandon and i in this spot we would not leave because we were having rocks being thrown off these hills at us and it wasn't this crew that was messing with you it was no the crew was the crew was down the crew took half of my people and then the rest of them and went off toward their setup hoax thing. Um, and we're perpetrating that while we were having this other stuff happen uh, about a half mile away. So really odd. One of the weirdest things about that is so, so basically like Brandon and I are on this path in the middle of nowhere in the TNT area. We hear this chatter, we kill our lights. The, the crew's gone by this point, we kill our headlamps and and you heard something jump off the hill onto the path in front of us and then start thumping toward us. So we turn our lights on. There's nothing there. Um, we, we got pretty spooked. This is like one of the first things I'd had happen in the field. We got kind of spooked. We ended up leaving the woods and going into this huge open field. And it's, you know, probably, it's probably like 200 yards, like from one end of this field to the other, maybe bigger. And in the middle of the field is this giant rotted out tree. And right as we're getting near this tree, walking toward this tree, a rock from the woods, 70 yards or more behind us, this rock comes out and impacts this tree right by us. Um, which is really weird. Like that was a weird, weird experience in general, but because of the fact that we were in there with this TV crew that was hoaxing, we don't talk about it much because the story is so ridiculous. It's also hard to explain that like this TV crew was hoaxing, but we're pretty convinced they weren't hoaxing this and then explaining why that's the case. And we just sound kind of crazy. So we just don't talk about it much. Right. Yeah. (laughs) That's such a weird Weird experience. I've only ever been to the TNT area once and it was right after CryptidCon. And I guess it was hunting season because I went in there oh, yeah. and there's hunters. In there it's like, that. I'm yeah. not going to go to any of the bunkers right now. <laughs> um, I wanted to circle back though, to that other uh, daytime sighting that you had. Can you elaborate on, you know, what exactly happened? 
Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, we were, um, so the Bigfoot project is a series. It was five episodes. We, we were, we did it on YouTube. Uh, it'll come out on Tubi and our fast channel this year as well. But um, we Heather's Heather moved onto this property down near Minerva back in 2020 or 2021. Um, she had almost immediately started having odd experiences on the property. Um, it's worth noting that her mother-in-law lives two miles down the road or a mile down the road at the end of the same road that this property's on. And it had a sighting back in like 2017 of a Bigfoot during the middle of winter. So we were, we were on this, we, we were aware of all this property and the activity that had been going on. She, the, the, the initial idea was to get Alex and Eli there for a beyond the trail that would kind of focus on her mother-in-law's sighting and some of the other weird stuff that had happened there. So we, we did that. We made a beyond the trail there, um, had some weird strangeness, but nothing crazy. Um, the craziest thing that happened was a wood knock that went off outside the cabin one night at like 2 AM that woke me up. Um, other than that, it wasn't anything insane. Alex and Eli had heard someone run on two feet past their tent at like three o'clock in the morning one night, um, but nothing crazy. So the idea was we were going to do this show called the Bigfoot Project that would be kind of like a podcast mixed with an investigative component. So we would have a guest out to Heather's property each week or each episode, we would interview them by the fire and then we would go out and investigate the property with them. So. The first episode was going to be just Heather and I talking about the history of the property and then showing the property, you know, showing the, the lay of the land. Um, then the first night we were out there was not a filming night, really. We were just kind of hanging out. We had pizza. All the kids were out there um, and we had tons of activity. There were wood knocks going off all over. We had Heather and I were approached on this uh, trail by something. We had a rock thrown past our head. Um, it was insanity. The most activity in like one short span of time I've ever had. Um, like they did not care that we knew they were there. Like it was short of having a, uh, you know, a, a visual they, they didn't, they would approach us within 10, 10, 10 feet, like right off this trail. Wow. So, <clears throat> so that was pretty wild. The next day I bought all these trail cameras. Um, and the next day I wanted to hang the trail cameras up around the property at specific locations where like we knew deer traveled or there was a water source or something. And so we were out um, in a gator, like an ATV driving around the property. And we were crossing a, a clear cut, a pipeline it was clear cut up beside this hill and it was two o'clock in the afternoon. There wasn't a cloud in the sky, sunny as could be. And I looked up the clear cut as we were driving across and this dark brown figure was just sprinting across the clear cut into the woods. Um, covered in hair, not fur or not vice versa, covered in fur, not hair. Like it looked like a real hairy dog, you know, running on two, two legs. Um, I could see muscle moving in the arm as it was like pumping because it was spring. 
And it was maybe one second or less that I had an eye on this thing before it crossed into the woods. Um, I had jumped, I jumped out of the gator and then ran down to the, the brush line. Cause there was, there was like six foot tall thorns that were <laughs> covering this clear cut, which was really weird at the time. Cause I, what I saw seemed to be running on top of the thorns. Like it was like what I saw was up this hill maybe 50, 70 yards away from us. And it was running, but it it seemed to be just running on a path or something, but there was no path visible. So about a week later, um, the, the people that tend the property came out and clear cut brush hog that, that, uh, clear cut. And we were able to go up to where the thing had been running. And it turns out there's a path right there. So what I saw was a clear cut path. It's actually like a dirt road that runs from there, from the neighboring farm down to the other part of their property. Um, there's a, a dirt road. It runs right past what we came to call the boneyard, which is like this area where there's like a hundred dead cows that have been dumped. Um, so, you know, there might be something to that, but um, that was, that was my visual. It was like less than a second, just enough time to be real frustrating that i didn't you know you know you just wish you had seen it right face to face face to face or something like that did you have a any idea of how tall it was it wasn't I, it wasn't very tall because i've gone to the location where it was running and i could kind of picture where it was when i went into the woods and there's a tree there with a limb that juts out over it and it was under that so i'm thinking it wasn't much taller than me is is probably just over six foot Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Yeah. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, finding Bigfoot when they tell Bobo to go up next to the tree and estimate because yeah. he's real tall. <laughs> no, um, and it's like, it's, it's the opposite of what I expected a Bigfoot sighting to be because um, I've always heard it's they're, they're covered in hair, like long stringy hair. Yes. Like, this looked like real short fur. Like it had fur head to toe. Um, yeah, more more orangutan like, ape like, not just sure. human hair. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and the biggest thing, you know, people are like, "Well, it was probably a person hoaxing you," but then, you know, I can guarantee you, in Ohio farm country, you don't go onto other people's property and run around in a fursuit. Yeah, it's so, probably a really a bad idea to do that. Yeah. I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, it was really weird. Yeah. So when you started all this stuff, you know what percentage of you believed that any of this was real versus now after having seen stuff and experienced things yourself? For me, it's been a uh, uh, roller coaster because I started out probably believing everything. Um, And then it changed a little because you start to interview a lot of the people that are telling you this stuff. And some of them are not believable, like face to face. Um, uh, Not necessarily people I've, interviewed for the movies, but I'm talking, you know, when you do events and you get some, some lady coming up telling you that Bigfoot visits her every night in her bedroom, like things start to, you start to realize there's a lot of people that are in this stuff who, who were in it for the wrong reasons or just are mentally unbalanced. And so there was an element of like lack of evidence too, because I had, you know, like I said, I've been going into the field a lot. I've been going to all these locations where stuff is said to happen. 
and nothing ever happened. When I had the rock throw and the whoop, I think it moved me from like 20% or 30% to like 80. And then my sighting moved me to like 99% that Bigfoot is real. Um, Tommy always asks me, my son always asks me what cryptids are real. I'm convinced that there are actual Thunderbirds because I think they're, I think there's just random, randomly large uh, birds of known species, you know, like just, yeah. just like there's, there's randomly people that are abnormally large. Um, so I think Thunderbirds are real. I don't necessarily think there's a species of Thunderbird, but I, I do think Thunderbirds are real. I think the Flatwoods monster was real because of the way Fred and Ed may described it. I don't believe in the 13 foot tall lizard creature, um, but, but I'm on board with what Fred and Ed may said they saw. Um, so I would say, I would say when it comes to Bigfoot, I'm convinced they're real. I, I know UFOs are real. Um, whatever they are, I have no idea, but I know UFOs are real. Um, and everything else is kind of varying degrees of yay versus nay dog man i think is entirely occult related somehow <laughs> that's just like that's just my my read on it anymore given some of the weirdness that there there's just patterns that those sightings follow that are very specific and the more witnesses you interview the more you see it interesting yeah yeah well um i wanted to briefly touch on uh some other stuff that small town monsters is doing uh mm -hmm. you now have this publishing branch um mm -hmm. and last year the, the dogman trial uh triangle was released uh written by aaron deese um mm -hmm. and i actually had him on the show last year to, to chat about it uh are there any new new uh new books that are on the horizon uh for the publishing side of things yeah you can talk um, about for sure we did the uh Actually, probably if you haven't read it yet, I think you especially would like it. We did a Kinderhook Creature book last year by Bruce Hallenbeck. Um, and that's kind of your neck of the woods up in that part of the country. Yeah. Um, so th that's one we did. This year we're putting out um, Hunting Grounds by Aaron Deese, which is a follow-up to Dogman Triangle, but focused on Land Between the Lakes. Um, we have uh, a book by Jason Hewlett about Ogopogo coming out. Um, Ron Murphy <laughs> has a book coming out about mystery lights, which is like that, that is a subject that's always interested me a lot, like the orbs and stuff like that. Um, you know, I got to have the bizarre experience of looking for the Brown mountain lights with Micah Hanks and, and Shannon LeGros back in, in 2019. And I think that was like, that was kind of the impetus for me getting very fascinated by, by mystery lights. So those are the three that we're putting out this year. Um, don't ask me for titles on the other two. Cause I forget them. Cause we've only solidified titles in the last couple of weeks, <laughs> but hunting grounds is the first uh, title we'll put out this year. And then monster fest will be sort of the debut of Jason Hewlett's Ogopogo book. So, um, and then I would, I think the mystery lights book will be like late, uh, probably a late summer release. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, is there, is there anything else coming up on the rate, the radar for, for STM? You know, what is, what's the future hold? Uh, like, do you guys, are there any plans to 
um, shoot things and cover stories that are in other countries. I'm wondering, you know, what's, yeah, the, what's a, the scope you want to get to with this? That's a, that's a big one. Um, I mean, I would love to do things in other countries. We did BC last year and that's how Ogopogo came about. But, you know, as far as like going overseas, the trick is always going to be, can we actually afford to drag five or six people to like France or something? You know, like that's always, that's always the big thing. Scotland is, would, would be a no brainer. Um, I would love to, I don't know when or if it will happen just, just given the budgetary concerns, but yeah, for, for, for this year, it's going to be stacked with feature films because of the distributor delaying titles from last year. We only put out two movies last year. Yeah. Um, so this year now there's going to be like eight or nine. So it's going to be a lot. Um, we've got uh, American werewolves two. Uh, the skinwalkers comes out on March 15th. And then on the trail of Bigfoot, the origin should be sometime in either late March or early April. Uh, I'm really excited for people to see that. Um, it was a very personal project for me because my mom had just passed away in in May when we made that. I, I shot that yeah. movie between her death and then her funeral, so it was like I had one week to go film this movie in between when she passed and when her funeral was, and that's so that is the huge focus of that movie. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and then there's all the movies we have coming out this year. Uh, Lost Contact, Dogman Territory, On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Ancients, um, Cursed Waters, the Ogopogo movie, and Cryptid the Goatman. Those will probably all be out at some point this year as well. Plus, there's what we're doing. We're we're terming or calling them specials, but they're they're basically like uh, a a film, a feature film that will be available like on YouTube and all of our streaming platforms at the same time. Uh, and the first one of those is the Phantom Lights movie by Tyler Hall um, that we're going to put out. And then he's working on another movie about mermaids in Virginia, which I'm absolutely fascinated about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That uh, is really interesting for sure. Yeah. So that's, that's the film stuff The Episodic content is through the roof. We're making a series next week. Is it next week or the week after? Two weeks from now called uh, UFOs Revisited. That is a um, uh, the brainchild of Aaron Deese. Um, and he did a lot of the research alongside Heather. And him and Heather and Courtney are co-directing that one. And it's like a UFO. Um, what are we at? 16 episodes? 18? 16? 16 episodes ish 16 or 17 episodes that we're filming. Um, and, and that's going to be like a round table style show, uh, about, uh, various UFO cases that will feature a lot of the STM crew, but then, uh, folks like Ron Murphy and Micah Hanks and Katie page. Um, so that's that one is coming up here soon. Um, we've got more beyond the trail. We've got more road to discovery, uh, Sasquatch on earth. will have another season on the trail of UFOs. We'll have another season. Um, what am I missing? There's more. Yeah. There's a lot more. There's more than that. Uh, uh, strange places is kicking off. I'm, I'm working on, um, hope, um, there's a series we're in the process of finalizing that I haven't announced or anything yet, but that's going to be done with the wild and weird West Virginia guys from here, cool. uh, in West Virginia. 
Uh, so they're going to do a series with us as well. So there's going to be full, full steam ahead. Yeah. 2024 is shaping up to be a very ambitious year. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, this has been a really awesome conversation, Seth. Um, can you tell my listeners the best places to find STM online, uh, any support that they can, uh, lend your way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, smalltownmonsters.com. The Kickstarter for our 2024 projects is still going on. Ends on March 2nd, I think is the final day. Um, and so the way we're doing the campaign is all the movies I already mentioned are part of the campaign, but the Ogopogo movie was not initially announced as part of the campaign. It's like a surprise fifth announcement. So if we can hit the stretch goal, which is 120, and we're right around 100K right now. So if we can hit 120, anyone that backs gets a free DVD or Blu-ray of that movie as well. So as long as we can hit our stretch goal, that will be happening on DVD. The movie's happening regardless. There seems to be like some confusion about that. The Ogopogo movie is happening regardless, but for us to actually put it on DVD and Blu-ray, we would have to hit like the stretch goal. So the Kickstarter is, is probably our biggest yet, but next year is going to be the 10th anniversary. So I'm sure we'll outdo it with that one. But um, yeah, the smalltownmonsters.com, all the social media um, that's out there were on tick, including TikTok somehow. Um, <laughs> so, so we're findable. Gotcha. Great. Well, thanks again for joining me, Seth. Uh, and uh, we'll have you back on sometime. Yeah. For thanks sure. for having me. Yeah. And we'll see you at Monster Fest. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Seth for coming on the show today. Definitely glad to finally have him on. It sounds like Small Town Monsters is on a pretty ambitious release schedule for this year and have a lot of really cool stuff planned. It's awesome that STM is out there doing the groundwork, getting the stories, and really preserving all of this stuff for future generations and researchers to understand all the strange stuff that happens out there. So I will link their website as well as the Kickstarter in the show notes if you want to help them out with their upcoming projects. As always, I want to give a huge thank you to everyone out there who listens to the Strangeology podcast. Those of you who have been with the show since the beginning back in 2020, those who have joined along the way, and for all you new listeners out there. It helps out so much when you download the show, share it with friends and family, post it on social media. The Strangeology podcast really wouldn't be possible without the support of listeners like you. And also a big shout out to all of my Patreon members for their continued support of the show, which helps keep the lights running here at Strangeology HQ. And to any advertisers or companies out there looking to collaborate with the Strangeology podcast or would like to be considered for an interview on the show, please send all business inquiries to info at strangeology.com. All right, that's all from me for now. I'm going to take a quick break here. And Seth was able to hang out for a little while longer to chat about more strange experiences in the field, along with other strange experiences out there. 
you won't want to miss it. So, patrons, stick with me and for everyone else. Until the next time, take care of yourselves and each other and keep it strange. back members to strangeology beyond your exclusive portion of the show hope you enjoyed the conversation